Revelation chapter 21, the word of the Lord. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, a hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. 
And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Excuse me. Well, this is the second uh, sermon on on the what I call the Sermon on the New Jerusalem. Uh, and last week we noted that, uh, just to refresh your memory, the Holy Jerusalem is both the church, that is all the elect in Christ who have ever lived, and the place where they will live after the final judgment. So both of those are the New Jerusalem. It is called Jerusalem, which means a place of peace in, uh, from the Hebrew. Uh, um, Salem, the word Salem, if you remember uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Abraham met the king of Salem, Melchizedek, uh, uh, and Salem was later called Jerusalem. Uh, Salem, the word Salem means peace in Hebrew. Jerusalem is place of peace. Uh, and we said uh, that there's some, and I mentioned this earlier this morning, who teach uh, that prophecy, in, uh, particularly in the New Testament, uh, focuses on the earthly city called Jerusalem, which is in the nation of Israel today, the one we read about in the headlines and the wars and all that. And they say that, well, we're interpreting God at his word, And we did point out that you can take God at his word and believe the Bible is literally true without believing that God meant every word literally. And we pointed out some examples of uh, where Scripture says God has wings and feathers and and things like that. Uh, Actually, every reference in the book of Revelation refers to the spiritual New Jerusalem, not the physical city uh, in the Middle East. And we pointed out that uh, people who believe that, as I mentioned earlier, end up in all sorts of error, Uh, which uh, if you examine the errors biblically, you can see how they're they're just not in accord with with Scripture. Um, Some of them want to rebuild the temple in in Jerusalem, and there's actually a movement. Uh, They have offices in Jerusalem. I read this. I've never been there, but they have offices where they're training people, training uh, schools, uh, training Christians and Messianic Jews how to sacrifice the animals out of the, following the instructions in the Old Testament so when they rebuild the temple, we'll have a whole cadre of priests that are ready to sacrifice animals. I mean, this is how nutty it gets. I was at a conference. Uh, I did, it was in Kerrville, and uh, I went to this conference uh, at a church uh, by an archaeologist, and I thought, well, this would be interesting, biblical archaeology, and he was presenting this viewpoint. Uh, that and he talked about how they're, they're working on uh, rebuilding the temple. And every year, uh, a uh, construction crew, a bunch of people, show up at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and the guards know they're coming because they come every year, and they come to tear down the mosque and to rebuild the Jewish temple. And, of course, they're turned away, and it's all sort of a, a show, but uh, they're showing this is what we want to do. Um, they think that the sacrifice, they read the scripture and saying, well, uh, it talks about Jerusalem in here, and sacri- so the sacrifices have to uh, be reinstituted before Christ can come back. Uh, that's, that's the way they get off on that. Um, and they, uh, again, they have the dual covenant. Many of them have the dual covenant that the Jews have a separate covenant. They don't need Christ. You shouldn't preach the gospel to the Jews, whereas scripture clearly says uh, we're going to all the world uh, with the good news. Um, uh, in Galatians 4, uh, we, we did 
mention that uh, uh, the Lord compares the Jerusalem, which now is, which is the physical city, uh, to the reprobate bondwoman Hagar and her son Ishmael, uh, the condemned line. And he, uh, Paul contrasts the, uh, uh, that with the spiritual Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem, which is above, is free, uh, which is the mother of us all. And that uh, the earthly, again, the earthly Jerusalem of today has nothing to do with the new Jerusalem of the Bible. Uh, there are a few things that I wanted to uh, add to that before we go on in, in Revelation 21. Uh, in Revelation 3, Jesus refers to, quote, the city of my God, which is new Jerusalem, which cometh down from heaven from my God. You know, one question is, well, if it's the Jerusalem that exists today, why is it called new Jerusalem? Uh, and also in Revelation 21, John says, we just read, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from my God. He is qu- quoting, essentially, what Jesus said in Revelation 3. Um, it's plainly called the holy city. Uh, Revelation 11.2 refers to the holy city, uh, and uh, we've read it several times here. Um, the beloved city in Revelation 20. Uh, So I'll leave it there since we've gone through it. If you want more, you can refer to the previous sermon on the topic, which is titled The Holy, The New Jerusalem, Part 1. We left off with verse 22 last time, so let's take a look at that. Revelation 21, verse 22 reads, And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. You might think, well, if if they're referring to the present-day Jerusalem and they want to build a temple in it, it says here he didn't see a temple in it. But that only, uh, not only does verse 22 mean the lack of the Old Testament temple, uh, but what it's saying is that no... Uh, ordinances, no rituals are needed to approach the Lord. We'll be living with the Lord. So we don't need a temple. We don't need uh, sacrifices. We don't need ordinances. The new earth and the new temple, or the new earth and new heaven, rather, is all temple. It's all devoted to the worship of the Lord. Uh, it's not going to be in one place where we go and worship the Lord. Uh, the verse says it will be entirely a holy world. In verse 23, the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did enlighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. There's a much more glorious light in the New Jerusalem than the sun. Uh, even though the sun is a glorious light, uh, it does remind me there's a story in the Torah of a uh, man who, an unbeliever, who asked a rabbi, well, show me God. And the rabbi said, okay, show you God. First, though, I want you to do one thing for me. Uh, stare at the sun for one minute. And so he looked at the sun, immediately had to look away. He said, well, I can't do that. He said, well, you, you asked me to show you God. You want to see God. And you, you cannot even look at a relatively insignificant creation of his for more than a, a moment. And yet you want to put your eyes on God. 
No, there's no there the, it, it, the there's no need of the sun. There's a more glorious light in it than the sun. The sun is a creation of God, but this light. Frankly, the light of Christ would darken the sun. Uh, you know, it's, it's like trying to. If you were, if you were, if you could be on the sun, and you say, "Well, let me light a candle," uh, it would, you know, it would look black against the sun. Essentially, uh, the, in other words, the Old Testament types, the more deeper meaning here, the Old Testament types, the old shadows, uh, are gone. The shadow of, of sacrifice, the, the idea that sacrificing an animal for the, uh, for the, for the, uh, to, as a covering for sin, uh, as a type of Christ, it's called a shadow in the Old Testament. We, and in Hebrews, it's a shadow of things that would come. We don't need the shadows anymore. We, we have the reality. Uh, the Son of Righteousness has risen, and his children are children of the light. The uh, old Reformed commentator Henry Moore says, and he has a is the only commentator who who talked about this, and I, I just throw it in because I thought it was rather an interesting uh, view of this verse. He says the popish interpreters expound the two great lights, the sun and the moon, as symbolic of the pope and the emperor, or the state or the civil ruler. The ecclesiastic power being the sun, the secular, the moon. Uh, and therefore, Moore says, neither pope nor civil ruler will be needed in the new heaven or the new earth. So that's a rather unique interpretation of that. Uh, I'm sure that the neither pope uh, nor civil ruler will be needed uh, in the new earth and in the new heaven, though. Uh, this does, this whole verse, 23, echoes, if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 60. Again, I've said, I've said before many times, the book of Revelation is really, you can't, understand it without understanding the Old Testament, particularly uh, the book of Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, some others. is essentially a commentary and a fulfillment of much of what is talked about there. If you look in uh, Isaiah 60, I think you'll find some very familiar language to what we just read, beginning in verse 19. The sun shall be no more thy light by day. Neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Thus thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy mourning shall be ended. Thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. I think no doubt John was thinking of that, because he was an Old Testament expert, of course, uh, when the Lord inspired him to write his words in Revelation. Going back to Revelation 21, verse 24, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor to it. I will. Uh, there's a, a point here that I would need uh, to make on verse 24. Um, actually, that, that's a uh, the nations of them with the words of them which are saved are an interposition into the manuscript. Uh, they're not in any. Those words are not in any Greek manuscript before the 12th century. They're actually a 7th century comment by uh, Andreas of Caesarea. 
and uh, they were they were put in at the last minute by Erasmus uh, when he uh, wrote the uh, received text or compiled the received text, and uh, he. He uh, uh, needed the, the stories. He needed to get the, the received text published, and he hadn't finished Revelation, so he grabbed the commentary, uh, and those words were stuck into it. And they, they've been actually they've been removed in uh, most modern translations, but they remain uh, uh, remain in uh, uh, King James and uh, some others. Uh, but uh, the the um, I'm not sure how consequential that is, but uh, it's not of them which are saved. The nations shall walk in the light of it, is a translation. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor to it. All the treasures of the world will be devoted to God's glory. As it were, brought to the feet of Christ. Uh, not the kings of the earth who allied themselves with the beast before the last day. Obviously, they're not going to be there. But the kings who were converted during the time of the gospel. Remember the timeline that we have posited here from uh, Revelation. Uh, is a time of apostasy where the true church falls away and it's very difficult for the church, time of persecution, as it's been many times. But we know that the blood of the martyrs has always been the seed of the church. Wherever the persecution uh, has been the hottest, uh, the church has later grown to be the strongest. Uh, And uh, uh, that's one of the Lord's mysterious methods of growing his church is through persecution. Uh, When we don't have persecution, we get fat and lazy and we get heretical. Uh, And uh, that's that's the way man is. Uh, so that's that's what happens uh, on, as far as timeline is concerned. But then thing uh, then the uh, civil government and the uh, pretty much becomes a, a, a one world government, uh, along with the uh, church becoming uh, not the true church but the, the church of the beast. Uh, the dragon becomes a, a one world church. And uh, uh, there are pockets of true believers, or the Lord always has his remnant. He had them with the Waldensians um, years ago, and he, he will always have them. But essentially, the church uh, falls. Uh, if you can imagine the mainstream denominations becoming heretical. Wow. <laughs> what an idea. Uh, so, you know, we can see it in our own time. And uh, it's, I'm not saying that the time of the end is necessarily near, but uh, uh, we, we certainly see a falling away. We see a consolidation of the nations, uh, you know, calls for national sovereignty being abolished and the U.N. Uh, running things and the U.N. You know, fighting you know, our soldiers being commanded by U.N. officers. Uh, and uh, some of them refuse to do that and get court-martialed. Uh, but we see this, this consolidation moving toward a, a single Hopefully, is in their not hopefully in, in their eyes. Hopefully, a single uh, uh, government, and the same way with with church. This ecumenical movement, where you know we have to reach out to to uh, uh, everybody, Muslims, and you know we're all one. You know we all Allah is the same God. He's just different name and all this propaganda. Uh, in fact, I, I thought on the way to church today it would have been. Uh, uh, appropriate to preach my sermon about uh, Islam in the Bible, uh, and the the uh, uh, today particularly being September 11th, but uh, to to uh, because uh, as as if you remember, it's been a while, uh, but uh, I did several sermons on Islam being uh, uh, um, the major a major force in the Book of Revelation, and uh, maybe we do that, revisit that at some point. Uh, but we see that, and anyway, I was talking about the timeline. Uh, and eventually, what we've seen from, I believe, from Scripture is that uh, the civil government and the 
this one church will be uh, will be aligned together, uh, but then the civil government turns on the the church and destroys it, uh, and uh, then it's, it itself is de- uh, collapses or is destroyed. Uh, and then the gospel, we have a resurgence of the gospel, and we have a time of, of, of relative peace and prosperity, not that everybody becomes a Christian, uh, but more and more of the gospel flourishes throughout the world. Uh, and uh, the, we've, we've developed that through many, many sermons, so I don't want to just throw it out there and expect you to, to uh, I'd ask you to, to uh, listen to those sermons and hear the foundation being laid for that. Uh, we said that's a, a, a one viewpoint. There are basically two other, broadly speaking, viewpoints. You remember we talked about amillennialism and premillennialism uh, and uh, what they mean scriptural, scripturally. And then the third, of course, is postmillennialism. Uh, Christ comes uh, uh, before the millennium, which is premillennialism. Uh, Christ comes after the millennium, which is postmillennialism, or amillennialism, which is a little vague about whether there is a millennium in reality or not. The millennium is in heaven or something like that. Uh, depends on the person you talk to. I'm not not putting down on millennialism. It's, it's a lot of uh, I think a lot of uh, where it uh, where it converges with post millennialism. That it's very impressive. Uh, okay, let's move on to uh, verse 25. Although I'll be going back to 24 in the closing. Verse 25 in Revelation 21 and the gates of it. That is the New Jerusalem. Shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And of course, we have no need of the sun because the glory of God lightens it. The Lamb is the light, so therefore there shall be no night there. So it says they shall not be shut at all by day. They won't be shut at all, period, because there will be always day. Uh, there will be no darkness. Uh, in other words, again, symbolically no evil. No sorrow, no ignorance. Going back to the wonderful, wonderful verse that that we looked at a few weeks ago. Verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. There shall be no night there. Albert Barnes, in his 1872 commentary, says... The New Jerusalem shall be continually open, allowing free ingress and egress to all who reside there. Uh, in Isaiah 60, verse uh, chapter 11, beginning of verse 11, Therefore thy gates shall be opened continually, they shall not be shut day nor night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. Again, so similar to Revelation. Applied to the future state of the blessed, it would seem to mean that while this will be their permanent abode, yet that the dwellers there will not be prisoners, the universe will be open to them. They will be permitted to go forth and survey the works of God in all parts of his dominions. At that time, the kingdom of heaven is going to cover the whole earth. This is after the final judgment. The reprobate have been thrown into the... Satan and his demons are are burning the lake of fire. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is covering the whole earth, bringing to consummation what Jesus himself taught us to plead in what we call the Lord's Prayer, that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, or as it is being done, literal translation, in heaven. So we pray, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, that's a 
quote, post-millennial prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. We're asking the Lord, we pray to him to have his will done, just as being done in heaven, to be done on earth as well. And what is heaven? Heaven is, 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 is perfection. Some commentators think that that the confines of the New Jerusalem will be it'll be a big city and, and everybody who's ever lived and died in Christ will be in there. Maybe, but you know, when I, I think about the meek shall inherit the earth from Beatitudes. Inherit the earth. So perhaps the New Jerusalem is more of a, a symbol of the, of the entire earth. That the meek inherit in the earth. Now, who are the meek? Well, Uh, meek and wimpy are not the same thing. That's how we think today when the word meek means wimpy. The wimpy shall inherit the earth. No. Uh, it means those who are meek when it comes to their own desires. Those who are meek when it comes to their own desires, but instead they follow the Lord's commandments. Moses was called the meekest man in the world. And he was an extremely brave man, as we know, if you know anything about the life of Moses. Uh, in, in Numbers 12, he's called the meekest man in the world. The meek shall indeed inherit the earth made new, Matthew 5, 5. For he who overcomes shall inherit all things, Revelation says. Dr. Francis Nigel Lee, who I've said often I think is uh, one of the, if not greatest living theologians, writes, quote, Our inheritance of all things will include all the treasures of our present world of nature. That which is natural will then be glorified forever. For God's children will enjoy the jasper-colored light which will illuminate it. They will walk on the golden street and stand on the bejeweled foundations of the city of God. They will drink of the crystal-clear river proceeding out of or flowing forth from the throne of the Lamb. And they will partake each month of the delicious fruit of the groves of the tree of life. However symbolical these descriptions may indeed be, they do symbolize material objects. This is so important for us. We think about this and we think, oh, this is kind of a ghostly world and then, you know, it'll someday be there and, you know, we'll sort of like dreamlike state. No, material objects. These material objects will be located in a material world. It's like they'll be able to do that in the New Jerusalem, the New Heaven. They'll be inhabited by material people with material bodies. For. New Jerusalem City is not a ghost town inhabited by disembodied spirits. We're going to have resurrected bodies, physical bodies. And he goes on to say, a major part of the all things we will inherit will be constituted by the riches of human culture. There will be art in the new (coughs) heaven uh, and music and culture. Originally, the Lord God had given his great commission to man to develop culture to his glory. said, the triune God, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Also dominate the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the earth. And God commanded man to cultivate the ground. This was, again, substantially repeated after the fall. Jesus, the second Adam, fulfilled in it his earthly life and is consummating it through his earthly children, especially since his heavenly obsession. It means him being in heaven. Consequently, the church is still to promote it today. 
In other words, bringing the culture into the glory of God, our whole culture, redeeming the culture, exercising dominion, bringing all of culture. And your, your faith is not just in church and, in a, you know, it doesn't stop at the door of the church or the door of the funeral home. Your faith is to be brought into all the culture. We are to redeem the culture for Christ. No matter what we do, you know, whether we dig ditches, we dig to the glory of God and we dedicate that to Christ. Uh, going on with Dr. Lee, Christians will still be reaping its fruit as its consummation in glory for all eternity. That is the fruits of, of converting the culture to Christ. This is why even in the city of God after the final judgment, quote, the nation shall keep on walking in the light of it and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. And they shall keep on bringing the glory and honor of the nations into it. The then cleansed cultural treasures and glorious honors of all people set on earth do dwell. For New Jerusalem city walls and gates and foundations with all of their sacred inscriptions will then be enjoyed by the people of God forever and ever. It's turning to uh, verse 26, which we just read. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. As kings and political leaders become Christians... They glorify and honor the church and God's kingdom with their national treasures now. And as more kings and political leaders become Christians in the future, they glorify and honor the church and God's kingdom with their national treasures in the future. This is what it's talking about, even on our present earth before Christ's final return. Dr. Lee said, During the latter-day glory of the church here on earth before the end of history, the Christian state will cooperate with the Christian church and with a Christianized society. Together, all three will triunely promote a really and truly and fully-orbed Christian culture. The great 18th-century Dutch theologian, Dr. Campegius Vitringa, has commented, quote, Princes, kings, and emperors shall serve Christ and his church and shall bring their glory, majesty, and power into it. For such political leaders shall convert their glory, majesty, and power to the use and advantage of Christ and his church. These political leaders shall publicly celebrate the true religion, honor its ministers, and by their authority and power they shall maintain and defend the true religion and true ministers of the Christian faith. And the church has already, uh, the Tringa says, the church has already experienced this in part from the time of Constantine and lately from the period of the Reformation. As I've often asked, if you don't believe in the, in the progressive uh, victory of the church, ask yourself, how many Christians were there 2,000 years ago? And how many are there today? And how many have there been since? Of course the church is, is, is victorious through, in history. Satan doesn't win. I read the last book, the last chapter. So the Tringa says, The meaning is that whatever is eminent, beautiful, splendid, or praiseworthy among the nations shall be consecrated to the use of the Church of Christ. Uh, Lee, rather. The command of wealth and of earthly prerogatives, the gifts of erudition, prudence, eloquence, the dignity of nobles, the majesty of kings and princes shall promote the interests of the church. Uh, And this also means the church militant, what is us today on earth, in its budding glory right here on earth as a preview of even greater glory of the church triumphant yet to flower on the new earth to come. Final verse in in chapter 21. 
And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. You say, well, of course not. Because how can they, they're not around, are they? Well, they're, they're continuing to exist. The damned will continue to exist, but they'll be in eternal fire. They'll be conscious, tormented forever and ever. They'll never be permitted in the city of God. They won't even be seen. There will be no sin there. There'll be no curse. There'll be no devil, nor tempter, nor temptations, no corruption of the flesh. It'll be a pure world for eternity. Rather than, rather than I'm going back to here full circle, rather than longing for Jesus to return and set up his kingdom and earthly present day city of Jerusalem, we as Abraham, it says in Hebrews 11, should long for that city with hath, which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So in the meantime, let's thank him for the foretaste of that city, which we enjoy here and now in the Christian church and in our Christian work, whatever that may be, whether in the home or outside of the home. Uh, Let us eat and drink and do all things now to the glory of God, knowing that our labors for the Lord are not in vain, the scripture says, and that our works follow us into glory. Let's firmly trust that we will indeed yet inherit the renewed earth and all of its fullness. Let's bring all our natural resources of our talents, of physical resources of the universe, all the art, all the culture, into God's kingdom. We will then be able to enjoy it not all today, but also uh, but on this present earth, and the hereafter too. So let's let's think about that. Let's think about the city where we shall soon live forever. The glories of it. Again, I'm going to close with Second Peter. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The true believer looks for the new heavens, just as Abraham looked, the city with hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We look for the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're commanded to do. Wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How can we have the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, without reading His Word, without studying, without memorizing His Word? Grow in grace, and that that brings grace, that brings blessings, of course. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's go to Him in prayer. Indeed, Father, we, we ask that we would grow in knowledge, grow in grace, grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father... 
make it so in our own lives and uh, in the lives of our families, Father, that uh, we would uh, uh, raise our children uh, in the fear and nurture of the Lord, Father, uh, that we would uh, make sure that they have a sound, solid foundation, a firm footing uh, in the Scriptures, Father, uh, and uh, give them uh, give them the holy desire, the holy zeal uh, that uh, to do that as well, Father. Uh, fill us with zeal and with knowledge, Father. For zeal without knowledge is useless, as is knowledge without zeal. None are God-glorifying, Father, but we must have both, so give us both, Father. And, uh, Lord, we uh, just thank you for this message that uh, thou hast given us from the Scriptures and uh, uh, planted in our hearts, Father, that we may set our eyes upon that new heaven and new earth, as, uh, just as Abraham did. Uh, let us, uh, let us uh, consume us, let it consume us, Father. Uh, that uh, we are building on earth uh, the thing, bringing those things into uh, into into to dedicated to Christ. Uh, as in so much as the, the spheres that Thou has put us in, there are our abilities to do so, uh, so that they will also be uh, uh, dedicated to Christ in the new heavens and new earth, and we can enjoy them there as well with our loved ones. Uh, Father, we thank Thee for that. Uh, Lord, we uh, have our uh, prayer requests, of course, uh, particularly. Uh, Father, we uh, continue to pray for uh, uh, the Meat Yard family, Father, uh, John and, uh, and Ryan and Lily. Uh, Lord, continue to bless them, uphold them, Father. Uh, keep, them in the, uh, keep them in the hollow of thy hand. In fact, we pray for all those who have lost uh, husbands and wives, uh, lost children, Father, uh, particularly those who are known to us, Father. Uh, we ask uh, continue the blessings upon them. Uh, Father, these, these times are either faith-strengthening uh, or faith-destroying. And, uh, Lord, we, uh, uh, we ask that they be faith-strengthening, uh, that Thou wouldst, uh, would hold, uh, hold all of our loved ones in the, in the hollow of Thy hand, Father. Know, let them know how close uh, you, you are with them, Father, at this time. Succor them, Father. Uh, give them strength and hope. Blessed hope, Father. Uh, Father, we uh, continue to pray for Kat's grandfather. Uh, Lord, we uh, ask that that cancer, uh, the Lord, that you would uh, remove that cancer uh, and that thy name would be glorified in the removal of thy cancer and, and restoring him to full health, uh, Lord. And uh, uh, again, with all these illnesses that we have on our prayer list and others known to us, Father, uh, we ask that thou would uh, most of all glorify thy name uh, in those situations. Uh, in the, uh, uh, if these uh, if uh, these are believers, we ask that uh, their faith be strengthened. If they are not, we ask that uh, Father, that uh, this be a time that they uh, that Thou would use to uh, turn them uh, uh, to Thee. And Father, we uh, we ask as as well that uh, Thy name is glorified uh, among those who care for the ill and the and the injured. That their name, that uh, they would, their eyes would be open, and if they're believers, their faith would be strengthened, Father, through these situations. We pray for our troops overseas, Father. Uh, give them safety, uh, protect them, uh, bring them home to us safely, Father, and give them courage. And, and uh, Lord, the, those who are believers, uh, give them great influence in, uh, uh, in spreading the gospel uh, at every opportunity. Uh, being in being in the service is a, is a great opportunity to to uh, spread the gospel, Father. So give them that opportunities as well. Uh, we pray for our civil government leaders that they rule biblically, Father. That they turn to Thy Word before before writing legislation. 
Uh, we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters at the East Texas Reformed Fellowship in Point uh, and our brothers and sisters at Liberty and Grace Reformed Church in Warrenton. Uh, Father, we uh, ask that uh, they would be continued to, uh, uh, that we, we be given ways to meet uh, and grow closer to them as well, Father. Again, we pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Protect us, Lord, as we uh, fellowship together and as we make our way to our homes. Let us always remember, Father, that this this day, we are given six days to work, to work uh, but the seventh day uh, is thy day. That's why it's, not, it's called the Lord's day and not called our day. Uh, so Father, uh, uh, let us remember that and everything we think and do and say today, Father. Uh, turn our minds to thee, particularly on this day. Uh, we might glorify thee. For it is in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, again we pray.